0: Lord, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word, uh, the things that you've given us. We thank you for your provision in all things, especially as we're looking at the promises that you've given us. We're we're grateful for the work you did on the cross in our place. Your substitution in our place is the reason that we can have peace with you, the reason we can approach you boldly, and all of these things. We ask that you be with us as we're looking back into post-tribulationalism that you give us discernment, and that you help us to be humble as we're looking through a contrasting alternative viewpoint. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Perfect. Okay, so we're getting back into what I would consider to be the contrasting views to what we believe. Now, just by way of reminder, we believe in a pre- tribulational, pre, we're pre-trib, pre-mill. We believe that Jesus is coming before the millennium, meaning that his coming is actually what sets off the millennium. He's the one who does that. But we also believe that way before that, at least seven years prior to that, there's also a pre-tribulational rapture. So that's where we're coming from. So we believe this rapture has no event that needs to transpire before it's able to take place. We get this idea through what we call the doctrine of imminence or imminency. We see that through the New Testament. We've spent quite a bit of time, I don't want to say dodging, but we've we've entertained quite a few objections. Because again, you don't truly understand your viewpoint until you're able to at least understand or entertain alternative ones. Now that's not to say that you should entertain every argument that Someone comes up with um, there. There are some thoughts that are be- best left unsaid, but there are also like legitimate concerns that people have because they just don't understand your perspective or they don't agree with your perspective. Now, I'm not saying I'm. I'm try- It's not an arrogant thing. It's not a oh, if you just understood more, and knew more, you'd know that I was right, right? It's not that kind of. Uh, arrogant assertion. But what it is, is there's a certain amount of biblical truth you need to understand in order to know any doctrine. There's a certain amount you need to understand in order to know the doctrine of eternal security. If you don't have the book of John and you have or the book of James, you're going to come to a very different understanding of eternal security if you don't already have those promises that are made by Jesus to us in your mind. That's how you understand the book of James has more to do with fellowship and working as a Christian, working out the truth of being a Christian in light of what you know is true about yourself than it it does about how to be saved. Again, you have to know something in order to get to that point. You have to have a basis for understanding certain truth before you can get to that point. And... We could emphasize this in a hundred different ways. Now, it's funny because Calvinists will make the same argument. You have to understand their their very telescoped, scanted view of the sovereignty of God in order to even recognize Calvinism as a line of thought. Okay, because you have to believe in a, a confused version of sovereignty that they're pushing into the Bible rather than something that you'd be gaining. From the Bible, but again, that's that's a different subject. What I'm trying to get at is if you're trying to look at something like the rapture, again, having by my count about six uh, sorry, five valid viewpoints, six popular viewpoints. um, and I hesitate to call them valid, but you have to keep in mind that in the church, this isn't always the focal point. I'm and I'm talking about the, the universal church so the church around the globe. This isn't they don't wake up and think let's talk about the rapture today. Let's let's have a great discussion about this doctrine. This is what matters to me. A lot of them are more thinking about what they're going to eat. So that doesn't negate the importance of this doctrine though. And so you have to keep in mind there are people that have less knowledge accumulated going into a viewpoint that would actually culminate in what we would consider to be a pre-tribulational rapture. So they're not quite there yet. So when we see these arguments, yeah, we could just say, oh, well, you're missing. You're saying watching, waiting, expecting argument like the first one, which remember what that one was? It was where we took those basic verses in the New Testament talking about the coming of the Lord, our waiting, eagerly expecting the coming of the Lord, and we turn that into this doctrine that we are to watch for the coming of the Lord and eagerly expect him. Um, now, again, if you're t- looking at it from a very technical standpoint, they're absolutely correct in saying that doesn't prove that the doctrine of eminence. We don't get that from those words alone. And that's what we talked about. You actually have to understand the promises made in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 5. Revelation 3, to know that we aren't going to be in the trib to understand the doctrine of eminence. You can't just do it just by those three verses, because if we know we're not going to be in the trib, that doesn't say that the rapture is imminent on its own, right? We actually have to understand that there are no signs which precede it. We get that from every description of the coming of the Lord pertaining to that subject that doesn't specifically pertain to the second coming, because there are verses that are excluded from this, talking about the coming of the Lord in the New Testament, which are talking about the second coming. So when we're looking at these viewpoints, we kind of have to keep in mind that they're going to be people that have a different framework than we do coming into this discussion. And so it's not We're not trying to be mean about it or anything, but what we are trying to do is we're trying to understand where they're coming from, where they're falling short in terms of their study. Not so that we can be arrogant, not so that we can say, well, if you just went to Flushing Bible Church and spent all the time that we did studying this, you'd know that. Like, we're not trying to do that. What we are trying to do is we're trying to be able to be a resource to help people. That's part of the uh, part of the goal. If you study like the gift of prof or pastor teacher in the New Testament, it's actually a teaching gift. It's not just to teach people the word. It's also to teach people how to teach the word. So there is, there's another aspect to it that people often miss. And so what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is we're supposed to all be teachers biblically, right? The work that Julia does at home while I'm at work teaching my kids is no more or less important than what I do here. So, just something to kind of keep in mind. We have to be a good resource, and if we don't truly understand the biblical content that we're claiming to believe in, then how do we even know that biblical content is true? So, again, you don't truly know something until you're able to teach it. Now, we believe... In a pre tribulational rapture. Again, we talked about the reasons why we believe that. We believe it because in 1 Thessalonians 4, it's pertaining to those in Christ, those in the church. What is pertaining to those in Christ? The coming of the Lord, where the dead in Christ rise first and those who are alive and remain go to be with the Lord. We learn about the fact that we're going to be transformed into resurrected bodies in a moment. We get that from the Greek word atmos. It's like an indivisible particle of time. And then in John 14, we learn that not only are these things going to happen, but they're going to happen prior to us going to the Father's house where Jesus promises to make us dwelling places. So that's the basic gist of why we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture if you compare that with the fact that we know we have an end gate in sight, that we cannot be in the tribulational period. So we know it has to happen sometime before that. Now, there are people that would contest that understanding, largely because they have their own presuppositions that differ from ours. So the first one that we've been looking at, we've already kind of dipped our toe in the, in the water, is the post-tribulational rapture. Now, what is the post-trib rapture? Let's see if we can summarize a few things about it. So a couple things about the post-trib group. They tend to be a little bit more traditional than people in say the mid-trib group um but that's pretty off the charts as well i mean you're going to have people from all different walks of life that believe in a post-trib rapture because they people from all different christian walks and groups and denominations have all made the same mistake of seeing the rapture in the second coming um and when people come out and say things like, well, there's only one second coming of the Lord, there aren't two second comings, like they make these arguments to try to make it seem foolish to have an alternative viewpoint or a viewpoint that would infuse some differentiation between those two ideas. And so that's why we spent as much time as we did on the differences between the second coming and the rapture. They're just, they're drastically different. They, there's a lot that are completely not only just different, Because we can live with differences talking about the same event, right? Because we have events that are talked about in Revelation, which are allusions to the Old Testament, that build on the understanding of the Old, Old Testament description. That doesn't mean they're two different events. We know that that's a building on, from an informational standpoint, where we get the fact that they're different events in terms of the rapture and the second coming are all the reasons we looked at. There are so many. Uh, They're completely different in purpose. They're different in the people that are talked about who are going to be there. Um, The timing, we haven't looked at it yet. We'll look at it later. The timing of the trumpets is different, too. Um, So just like little things, but if you're paying attention to the details, it's just—it's easy to see that they're distinct. The most basic one that I keep uh, recommending, because as I read more and more post-trib literature, I see it's more and more ignored and kind of pushed to the side is the fact that they ignore John 14 and the ramifications there. And they don't come up with a suitable response for that. That is the biggest difference between the rapture and the second coming. If you forget about all the other differences, and that's the only one you remember, the fact that the second coming, Jesus is coming with believers, Revelation 19, to the earth. And John 14 is some other coming where Jesus is taking believers to the Father's house. So you have to put that somewhere. And unless you're going to symbolize it make it Christians in their deathbeds and make, make up some story that sounds good on paper, you're going to have to understand that to be somewhere in the timeline. And it just happens that Jesus was talking to the apostles who were going to be basically the building blocks of the church as he used them to push his truth, this new mystery truth of the church, on a Jewish-Gentile combination people that we were going to know as those in Christ, it just happened that that was the building block. And through that culminating relationship between Christ, the apostles, and the church, we got the idea of First Thessalonians chapter 1, chapter 4, Revelation. All of these ideas stem from that. So when we're looking at it, that was pertaining to those in Christ. That's part of the reason why we land where we do in our theology. Now, again, the first way that I think you can even really interact with this subject is to look at how they interact with the main verses that we look at when we're looking at the rapture. John, First Thessalonians, and First Corinthians. Now, we spent quite a bit of time looking through Douglas Moo in particular, ending on his last quote pertaining to 1 Thessalonians. Now, just by way of review, what we notice is that they make a lot of points of similarities between 1 Thessalonians and Matthew 24. The reason they do that is because what they want to happen is similar to the logic we use with the kingdom. And I use that all the time because we spent a year and a half, talking about the kingdom, and I think it's a really good analogy. They see the idea of the coming of the Lord. And so what they do is, and what they want to do, is they want to look around the New Testament and see where the coming of the Lord is used without a lot of explanation given about what it's talking about. And they're saying, well, we know Jesus was talking about the coming of the Lord in Matthew 24, so why would we assume that the coming of the Lord here is different, right? So they do kind of like a bait and switch when they're making their... Their arguments, so we're going to be looking at that a little bit more detail, a little bit later as it pertains to Matthew 24 and First Thessalonians, because it's not just Douglas Moo, it's not just Robert Gundry. There are a lot of people that piggyback on this logic, and they actually believe it's funny. They actually believe it settles the argument. So that's part of the reason why we're going to be looking at it. Um, just so I'm not misrepresenting anybody as we're looking through it. That's the reason we're looking at these quotes and kind of interacting with them. If I just taught you what post-trib people believed, um, well, first of all, we wouldn't get a word in edgewise for about seven or eight weeks. And I don't believe in teaching what I believe is completely unbiblical in the church. So instead of that, we're kind of doing like a reading commentary, building off of the knowledge that we built prior to these lessons. So if it seems like we're moving fast, if I don't have a lot of information up on the slide, that's because we're building on what we already spent time on. So that's kind of the logic behind it. So without further ado, where we left off last week was how they were looking at First Thessalonians chapter 5. Douglas Moo, and he believes in the, in the logic of why you use five words when you could use 108. So we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at what he has to say in First Thessalonians 5. I just want you to watch their logic. Now, if you could turn to 1 Thess 5, that's what we're going to be looking at first. And now this is going to be uniquely interesting, I, I think, to the majority of the people in this room, because Kurt very recently taught through First and Second Thessalonians prior to him getting into Ephesians. So this should be fairly fresh in our minds. But, and even if you don't immediately me- recognize when he makes an assumption and reads it into the text, it should at least set off kind of like a, huh, that doesn't sound right. That seems a little bit off. Like that should, that should be the thought that goes into your mind as I'm reading his quote. And so I'm going to point it out, but just keep in mind, if you notice something off, there, there's a reason for that. So, Douglas Moo, he says, After the description of the rapture in the parousia in chapter 4, Paul turns to the subject of the day of the Lord, in chapter 5. He introduces this topic with the phrase, Now, brothers, about times and dates we do not need to write to you. Since this day includes the destruction of unbelievers, it is clear that a post-tribulational event is described. The question to be asked then is this. Paul Does Paul intimate that the Thessalonian Christians to whom he writes may be still on earth when the day comes? That's not what I was thinking when I read that, since he just talked about them leaving the earth in the chapter before. Sorry, I'm not reading. That was my, that was my comment. Um, but anyway, uh, he says three considerations are relevant. The relationship between chapter 4 and chapter 5 the meaning of day of the lord and the nature of the basis of paul's exhortations in verses 1 through 11 it is sometimes claimed that the day <laughs> i actually claim this this is funny introducing chapter 5 demonstrates a transition to a wholly new topic and that it is therefore inappropriate to include the rapture as part of that day Three considerations cast doubt on this conclusion. First, while day generally denotes a mild contrast, it also occurs frequently as a transitional particle, pure and simple, without any contrast intended. Second, even if a contrast is intended by Paul, one must determine the nature of that contrast. Rather than distinguishing two separate events, Paul may be contrasting the effect of the same events on two different groups, believers and unbelievers. Hold that that thought, that believers and unbelievers contrast. We're going to be looking at that a little bit later. That's where most of them make their arguments. That being said, he says, Third, observe how Paul speaks of times and dates in verse 1 without specifying the time or date of what. The omission of any specific event here could indicate that the previous topic is still in Paul's mind. Next, then, we must seek to determine what Paul includes in the day of the Lord. Can the rapture be part of that day? In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, also that day, denotes a decisive intervention of God for judgment and deliverance. It can refer to a relatively near event to the final climactic event, It is not always clear that the prophets clearly distinguished the two. Although the day is frequently described as one of judgment, deliverance for the people of God is also often included. In the New Testament, the term is almost universally related to the end. So just kind of keep in mind, that's like the scope of where they're going with their arguments. And they all do this. They don't take a different approach to 1 Thessalonians 5. And remember, we actually—and we—Kurt spent more time on it than I did. But when we summarized the purpose of First Thessalonians, when we went through this material, when we were looking at uh, ch- verse nine as it pertained to imminence, we, without even looking at alternative viewpoints, just by looking at the Greek, when we were going through this very short amount of First Thessalonians, we already noted that he was transitioning to a distinct but not entirely different subject. We understand that there's a distinction just in the grammar of the Greek construction. We didn't, we didn't even have to go into a bunch of uh, mental gymnastics to get there. And so he's already arguing against the obvious meaning of the initial verse in his description before he even gives his opinion. So... Usually when people try to do that it's it's an indication that they're going somewhere different than the native meaning of the text. So again just kind of keep that in mind as we're looking at it. He carries on and he says from the great variety of expressions which are used in the New Testament it is clear that there is no fixed terminology and that distinctions on that basis cannot be drawn. All agree that the final judgment is included but is the tribulation period also part of the day of the Lord? Okay, so what did we talk about when we looked at the day of the Lord? We talked about quite a bit. What do we know? What's the biggest thing about the day of the Lord? It's not a technical term. Sometimes it refers to the interaction of Armageddon, where Jesus is coming with the saints. Sometimes it refers to the, the day of the tribulational period, because they look at it as... What is a Jewish day? It kind of starts at night and then goes in transitions to day. It's a transitional period from a time of darkness and judgment and destruction to a day. Sometimes even the kingdom is the day portion of that. So, I mean, it's not a technical term. And what post-trib people do, and you'll see this with every other viewpoint other than pre-tribulationalism, which recognizes the non-technical usage of the term, is they will all try to make it technical in a sense so that they can make what happens when Jesus comes distinct from the rest of the trip. Now, the reason I'm saying this in, t- in kind of a commentary fashion is because this is really where we're going with this study. We're trying to look at how they get to their conclusions. Um, the biggest way they do that is if they can make the majority of the tribulational period, not wrath of God, falling on believers. And this is going to be different from every other alternative viewpoint. Post-tribulationalism believes that Christians are going through the tribulational period, uh, through the time of Jacob's distress. They believe that they are largely protected from God's wrath during that time. So that being said, they try to make a very big differentiation between God's wrath, Satan's wrath, and the world's wrath through the entirety of it. Um, Again, we we like to highlight in Revelation chapter six with the seal judgments that Jesus Himself is the Lamb that is opening the seals that let the judgments fall on the earth. So again, you can you can read into it however you want to, and we're going to see Him do that here and more in the future. But just kind of keep in mind, like when they try to, I I believe in parsing the Greek verbs and figuring out exactly what it means too, but they're not trying to do that. They're trying to almost tune the Bible like a violin to try to mean something different than what it actually means. And I know I can get a lot of hate for saying something like that, but just watch them do it is what I'm trying to say. Just keep an eye out for it. We're not trying to teach an alternative viewpoint right now. We're trying to analyze it. There's there's a difference. Uh, That being said, first, no reference to the eschatological day in the New Testament clearly includes a description of the tribulation. In fact, it is interesting that the only two occurrences in Revelation, chapter 6 and 16, refer to the final judgment brought through the parousia. Second, Malachi 4 verse 5 and, and Joel place what are generally agreed to be tribulational events before the day. Third, Paul seems to suggest in 2 Thessalonians 2 that the day cannot come certain until tribulational even ev- or events transpire. While these points carry considerable weight, it must be said that the evidence, uh, the rapture, is not entirely clear, and it will—yeah, I think the rapture wasn't supposed to be there— that the evidence is not entirely clear, and it will be be best not to base too much on the exclusion of the tribulation from that day. However, while there is some indication that the tribulation should not be regarded as an element of the day, it would seem that the resurrection of the saints is included— Five times in John's Gospel, Jesus proclaims he will raise those who believe on him on the last day. And since the rapture occurs at the same time as the resurrection of believers, the rapture too must be part of that day. Th- that, this is so, I think some of the words got messed up when I printed this out. Um, this finds confirmation in the fact that Paul frequently describes the day as an event to which believers in this life look forward. It is a day of redemption. Thus, in the New Testament, the day includes destruction of the ungodly at the parasy of Christ, along with the rapture and the resurrection of the righteous dead. That is, for Paul, as for the other New Testament writers, the day is a general denotation of the great future that draws with Christ's coming. The fact that the tribulation seems to not be a part of that day suggests that it precedes all those events but it is not certain. So what is he really suggesting? He's suggesting that, first of all, that there's going to be one resurrection. And you're going to see this with every post-trib teacher that's out there. Is if they can make what Daniel 12 verse 2 talks about as the resurrection of the righteous mean the exact same thing as this resurrection talked about in uh, 1 Thessalonians and 1 Corinthians 15. Then they can say, well, we know the Daniel one's going to be at the end of the trib. So we know that the rapture has to happen at the end of the tribulation. So that's kind of where they go with their logic. Again, making the assumption that there has to only be one resurrection. Or more specifically, that the resurrection of those in Christ cannot be distinct from the resurrection of believers who are not in Christ because it is possible to have a believer who is not in Christ before Christ came to the earth. So that being said, he continues. I told you that he has he has so much. <laughs> um, but again, what I'm trying to accomplish right now is I'm trying to give you a taste for where their logic comes from. And that does mean I'm going to be talking for about 40 minutes straight and just reading what other people say, but just... Keep in mind, that's, that's where the logic train starts. Um, we're just trying to interrupt it and kind of analyze it in a way that makes sense. So he says, what is certain is that believers cannot be excluded from involvement in the events of 1 Thessalonians 5, simply because the day of the Lord is the topic. We disagree. But he continues. And he says, in this passage, the emphasis is undoubtedly on judgment which comes suddenly and certainly on those not expecting it. Does Paul suggest that the Thessalonian believers may have a relationship to this judgment? If so, this would constitute strong support for the post-tribulational position because either, one, believers will be alive during the tribulation, if this is the judgment Paul thinks of, or two, believers will be on earth when the post-tribulational parousia occurs, if the judgment occurs then. Because notice that part. He doesn't know either. And you're going to see this with uh, post-tribulationalism in general. They are very vehement or in terms of w- how they believe our position is false. But when they start presenting their opinion, they go to ambiguity. And you're going to see this a lot. Um, because even in the details they're pretty certain of, they're, they, they're still not certain. So anyway, we're going to keep moving. Uh, because their basic exegesis of 1 Thessalonians 5 is wrong. Which is a big claim. So we're going to look at that in a second. Um, Assuming I can even find where I was just reading. So anyway, it says that the fact that people are saying peace and security does not mean that the tribulational period cannot be indicated. Such people were doing the same thing during Old Testament calamities. And Revelation 13 indicates a high degree of normality by those following the beast. That Christians are associated with the day is the clear inference of verse 4. Here, Paul tells the Thessalonian believers, you are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you like a thief. Why? If believers are raptured before the tribulation, would Paul have qualified his assertion um, with as a thief? Much more appropriately would have been the simple statement that the day not overtake you. If you had a friend visiting from another country who is worried about becoming involved in a war, you both knew it would soon break out, and if you knew that he would, in fact, be safely out of the country before it started, you would um, assure him by telling him, don't worry, this war-, war won't affect you. Only if you knew he would be present during it would you say, don't worry, this war-, war will not affect you as the kind of the disaster it will be for the citizens of this country. It also doesn't say that, but in other words... Uh, what Paul rather clearly suggests is that the day overtakes both believers and unbelievers, but only for the latter does it come as a thief, unexpected and harmful. Um, so, is this talking about believers and unbelievers? Is that the topic of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? Eleanor doesn't look like she knows, so I guess we'll look into it. So when it's talking, and we looked at this quite a bit, when it says, but we'll start in verse, uh, verse three, it says, well, they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief for you. Okay. So now, now who's he addressing the Thessalonians for you are all sons of light. And sons of day, we are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet in the hope of salvation. So what when he's saying so let us not sleep, what does that indicate to us? Well, first of all, keep in mind he's talking about aware or unaware. That's basically the, the gist of the argument he's making. Um, what that indicates to us is that we have the possibility of being asleep, being unaware. So what is he saying? He's basically just saying to be aware. To Again, it's, he's not addressing, it's, he's not making a further elaboration of believers versus unbelievers. He's saying, this is what you should be doing. This is what you might not be doing. So don't don't do the bad thing, do the good thing. It's, it's really simple. Um, but what the post-trib group is going to do is they're going to make this a further elaboration of believers versus unbelievers because what they're trying to assert is that this is <coughs> sorry, a list of instructions about how you ought to live during the tribulational period. And that's how a lot of them choose to exegete this portion of scripture. Um, if I had just let him talk for a little bit before interrupting that, Um, what he would have said may have made more logical sense, but it's based off of the presupposition that he's still taking from verse 3 about these people whom destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman or child and they will not escape. So he's really basing it off of that idea. And he's using that idea, that description of what's going to happen during the day of the Lord, and trying to use that as an argument to try to make it so Christians are involved in it. And so that's really the argument they try to make, but they're ignoring the basic, the general context of that particular verse. And so that's why we're taking a look at it, um, because I want you to see how they're doing it. So that being said, we'll finish with this slide, and that's what we're going to have time for today. This is, it's taking so long just to look at what they what they believe on these verses. Um, but anyway, it says, The second reason for thinking that 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul associates believers with the day in a setting after the tribulation has begun, is found in his close dependence on two gospel passages in which Jesus encourages watchfulness in view of the post-tribulational parousia. Matthew 24 and Luke 21. The parallels between the latter text and 1 Thessalonians 5 are particularly compelling. Both have as their subject the day, which, it is warned, will come as those who are unprepared and suddenly and unexpectedly, like a trap, and emphasize that there will be no escape. Both encourage believers to watch in light of the coming day. Both use the same verb and the same adjective, and the latter is used only in those two places in biblical Greek there is every reason for thinking that the same event is depicted in both. And in fact, strong indications that one is dependent on the other. But if Luke 21 encouraged watchful or encourages watchfulness in light of the post trib coming, um, as both Pentecost and Walverd argue, there's every reason to think that first Thessalonians five does also. Finally, The logical connection between Paul's assertion in verses 4 through 5 and the following exhortations is also better explained if the Thessalonians are to experience the day. It is not Paul's point to encourage the believers to watch for the day so that they might escape it entirely. For the verbs Paul employs in his commands do not connote watching for something, but faithfulness to Christ as incumbent... Uh, upon those who believe in the light and of the day. Nor can First Thessalonians 5 verse 9 be used to argue that Paul promises believers such an escape since Paul never uses wrath without qualifiers to denote a period of time. And in view of its contrast with salvation here, it must indicate the condemning judgment of God associated with the day, not the day itself. To summarize Paul's argument, the salvation to which God has destined Thessalonians and which they already experience should act as a stimulus to holy living uh, that will enable them to avoid experiencing the day in its, uh, in its judgment, its unexpected and destructive features. In other words, Paul exhorts Thessalonians to live godly lives in order that they might avoid judgmental aspects of that day not that they might avoid the day itself. Whether this day includes the tribulation or, as it's more probable, the climactic return of Christ at the end of the trib, believers on earth are clearly involved in it, and only a post-tribulational rapture allows for this. Finally, the interpretation provides a coherent explanation of the transition from chapter 4 to chapter 5, where, whereas Paul has comforted believers about that position of the dead per- at the Parisea in chapter 4, he turns to exhort the living about their responsibilities in light of the Parisea in chapter 5. So that's the basic logic train that he's on. Sorry, I have it on a very, very small window that I was having trouble reading all the words. So, anyway, uh, that's the basis for it. So, that's where they get their ideas about this particular chapter. And they believe it's compelling evidence that would suggest that Jesus comes. After the tribulational period for the Christians. But granted, what did they mess up just in that discussion? Well, first of all, they're misidentifying the believers in Matthew 24, because they have to do that in order to tie it to First Thessalonians chapter 5. Who were the believers talked about in Matthew 24? The tribulation Jews, the remnant, the Jewish remnant through which the kingdom's going to be coming. Because it was the Jews, the believing remnant at the time when Jesus was physically talking to them, who asked him what would be the signs, basically what are the signs of the times and of your coming and the end of the age. Um, and so that's the context there. The context here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 is not giving us that same discussion. It's not giving us a discussion about running for the hills And being uh, protected by the Lord, um, which we're going to get into later too, because they actually pull from Isaiah 26 a lot of promises given to, you guessed it, Jews in the tribulational period where God is going to basically protect them because now, not all of them, we know that through Ezekiel that two-thirds of them are actually going to perish, which... You're actually going to run into people. I think it's even uh, John MacArthur, who is very much on our side on this particular subject, even suggests that Jews are going to be completely protected through the tribulational period um, in a few interviews. So again, people are going to mess up a lot of those ideas Like as you're, as you're looking into that. Just kind of keep in mind, like as they're looking at this context, just how much they've read into it. Because it doesn't really say any of that. Um, that's the biggest thing. And when I kind of agree in theory with his exegesis of verse nine, where he's saying that it's to encourage watchfulness. That was the whole purpose of us looking at imminence. That's the whole purpose. When he says that we are to be watching, we're to be sober, we're to be focusing. And then he says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep. Oh, wait a second. There it is. It is talking about Christians both times. Oh, man. Sorry, a little sarcastic. But he says we will live together with him, whether we are awake or asleep. And then he says, therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are also doing. So, again, that's that's the basic gist of it. And so we're going to be looking at this a little bit more in detail later, um, especially as it pertains to all the other viewpoints, which all mess up 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5. So, because they have to. Because if you just look at it, and my basic assertion, um, they would actually disagree with it, but my basic assertion is that if you were to just look at 1 Thessalonians you're to take it literally, grammatically. You're not to infuse a meaning from an external context like Matthew 24, um, which has similarities, but the parallels are not exact. And the exact parallel, the almost exact parallels that they do find, don't harmonize with the parts that are completely different from one another. That if you just look at this context, you'll come to this idea that. First Thessalonians 4 talks about the coming of the Lord, answers the question the Thessalonians had about the dead in Christ, the fact that they're going to partake in the rapture. And then 1 Thessalonians 5 addresses the day of the Lord. But what does he say? You have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Again, it doesn't necessarily give any answer towards their cause, but we know it certainly helps ours. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll look at it more a little bit next week. Father, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for the study of your word. We thank you for 1 Thessalonians, the promises that you gave to that small church, and the benefits and the huge, tremendous blessings that we've gotten as a result of that ministry. We thank you for the promises that we have at the end of every chapter to be looking for you. We thank you for the promises we have in the first and the last chapter that we're exempt from the time of wrath. And we thank you more that we can can hope in the promises of chapter 4 that we're going to take part in your coming for the church in the rapture. We pray for this and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.